0: Markets, speculation, and risk.
1: This is the Chat with Traders Podcast, hosted by Aaron Feifield. What's up, traders? Welcome to episode number 71. Thank you very much for tuning in. A big guest on the podcast this week, a man who for many won't need any introduction, and that is Eric Scott Hunseder. Eric started out as an algorithmic trader in the early 80s, soon after became a self-taught programmer. And since then, he's written many software applications for financial data. But today, Eric is the founder of Nanex, a whole market streaming data feed which transmits 20 billion data points every day. Well known for speaking out against the many issues that surround high-frequency trading, Eric will tell you straight, HFT firms are stealing money, exchanges have rigged the market, and the regulators that allow this type of activity to continue are corrupt individuals. So as you can imagine, this makes for some really interesting conversation. Additionally, we talk about quote stuffing, many flash crashes that are occurring on a daily basis, and why Eric recently received a $750,000 whistleblower award from the SEC. Now, this interview is a real opener, and I'm excited to share it with you. I'm Aaron Fryfield, and here is Eric Hunsader. Eric, it's incredible to be speaking with you. How's it going, man?
2: It's going fine, mate.
1: (laughs) I like it. Well, thank you very much for being here. Let's get right into it because I certainly have a lot of questions for you, mostly around market microstructure and of course, HFT. But before we get too deep into that, I'm keen to know how you got to where you are now. So let's start from where you began programming because you've been labeled as one of the most gifted programmers in the United States by The Guardian. Where did you learn from and how did you get into programming?
2: Well, I started in 84 um, and uh, they weren't really teaching uh, programming languages in college. It wasn't mainstream at all. So I, uh, I taught myself. Um, Got a book called Seed uh, Primer Plus written by Stephen Waite, who, by the way, later became a customer of mine about 15 years later, but that's beside the point. Anyway, I bought his book. Uh, it was, really went through the entire C language, and I devoured it. I mean, I, was, I read through the whole thing in just a couple days and um, really enjoyed writing code. And actually, the reason I wanted to learn computer programming languages because I had my own algorithm in a Lotus one two three spreadsheet <laughs> calculating 30-minute uh, oscillators for the uh, S&P 500 features, which I would then call in to, down on the floor <laughs> when the signals went off. And that wasn't uh, fast enough to run optimization, so I turned to see how I could do it faster, and that led me to I did the program and C seemed to be the best language and I started that in 84 and I have not stopped.
1: (laughs) That's very cool. Now, do you still use C for the most part to this day? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Now, so you mentioned that you had some interest in in trading um, as you'd already created an algorithm before 84. Where did that interest in trading and, and finance come from?
2: The Wall Street Journal. Um, just fascinated by uh, that whole world. Um, how you could you could be independent and you know create a living um, with not with not having to hire a lot of people. It was it was a way to kind of get to do something on your own that was that was exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And I think that's what you know, obviously, attracts a lot of people to trading. And, you know, it really sort of draws on that entrepreneurial streak that many of us have. So, what was your experience like, you know, in those first few years trading? Um, From what I understand, you're not an active trader still to this day. So, how long did that last for?
2: It lasted about two and a half years. And it was during that time that uh, I actually, it was actually quite profitable. And, uh, you know, enough to make a living off of and uh, enough to buy more computers. And it was also during this time that I really developed uh, a love, if you will, for writing software, and not so much of a love for following the system, because I would always second-guess it. And you know, writing softwares, software will always do what you tell it to do day in and day out, whereas trading, there's a lot of unknowns um, that you can't account for, and uh, I just decided that I was going to uh, learn how to write or get better at writing code, and I would come back to trading one day, and I never did, <laughs> and so it was at the same time I was developing the system, I was I was also archiving the data that I was using in the system, which was you know the futures data from the CME, which by the way I was able to. Um, archive on a 360K floppy disk. The entire exchange was trading for the day. And uh, started selling that data to other people who wanted to develop algos. And, you know, created a bulletin board system and and sold the data online. You know, this was quite a bit before the internet where people had to dial up. And, uh, you know, that business was actually Taking off and bringing in income, and so it was it was a pretty easy decision to to say, "Hey, you know what? I'll come back to trading later in life."
1: Sure, sure. So, is that how Nanex came to be today, or did you have any other roles in the finance world, or even? Oh no, as- Nanex,
2: Nanex didn't come along until the year two thousand. So this, you know, so around eighty nine, I one of one of my customers who was buying data from me was. Uh, a man by the name of Tom Joseph, who runs trading techniques in ohio and and him and I really got along and he wanted me to to write software for his company and I thought that was a um, it was a great opportunity and so I took it and I went to work for him, and we did great things but we we had um, i I remember we were riding around in his uh Cadillac with a with an old compact computer hooked up to a cell phone modem thing it was a, it was a big brick but we were we had real time streaming charts um mobile <laughs> like p 500 futures and so you know i wrote a lot of a lot of software back in those days that um you know a lot of it We were doing, you know, we were doing Windows kind of stuff before Windows even came along. So that when, you know, the next iteration of software came down the pike, it was, you know, we were always iterative and learning on top of the knowledge base that we had built up before. So then it was a few years doing that, um, a company called CQT, which is uh, still a company around today, they bought Tom's software and uh, wanted me to come along with it. So I I did, because uh, Windows had just come out and they wanted to port their software over to CQG for Windows. And I thought that was uh, interesting, and so I went to do that. And uh, and then about three years into that, that's when the internet came along. And, And you know, people who had been writing software for a while then, we just knew the internet was going to be huge. I mean, it was within, within a few days of really seeing how things were connected. It was so obvious that this was going to be uh, one of those revolutionary things. And, uh, I went to the CEO of CQG, Tim Mather, and I said, Hey Tim, I want to do this. This is what we need to do. And if you guys don't want to do it, I want you to, yeah, I, I want to go and do it on my own. And, uh, he was cool with that. And so I left and started my own company and in a very short period of time had written a real time streaming job applet that, uh, you know, somebody could type in a symbol and they would get the streaming chart and time and sales. And that was called, uh, we called it live charts. And then we had a desktop application that went with it called Q charts and dot uh, quote.com came along and saw it and they, we kind of merged together. They gave me a bunch of stock uh, in return for the software. And so we partnered together and in the space of 18 months or two years, um, we went from zero to 10,000 paying customers. And so, which was a novel thing back uh, then because everybody was giving things away for free. And really the only sites making any money were, were the dating sites and us. And uh, it was just, it was fascinating watching, you know, interacting with people who for the first time ever saw that stock prices actually changed during the day. I mean, so many people had this notion that, you know, the the numbers they see see in the Wall Street Journal, those closing prints, is the only price for that stock for the day. And so that brought on a whole group of people, you know, day traders who wanted to um, to participate. And this was the you know big internet bull market, of course, which made it all the more wild and crazy. And so winding up, um, Lycos came along, and uh, wanted to buy quote.com out. And actually what's, what what really goes on, um, that whole uh, IPO business is, you know, the venture capitalists, so they want to cash out. I mean, that was what they're always looking at. And it was, it was, the term is a liquidity event, where we can turn our worthless stock paper into money. And I was, you know, I was fine with that and so we got cashed out and I got a chunk of Lyco stock and I knowing how the markets were and how crazy that bubble was, I had it all sold in about two weeks. Which, you know, at the time, you know, a lot of people were telling me I was being an idiot, but you know, that was in December of ninety nine and I uh I guess it was one of my better trades. <laughs> And that's when I that's when I started founded Nanex the company.
1: Okay, sure. So tell us a little bit about Nanex and what you're actually doing today. And and by the way, that was really cool to get your your backstory. So yeah, give us a little insight to what Nanex does today and you know what you're doing on a day to day basis.
2: So you know one of the th- one of the things that I've always been developing over the years. In fact, the code name for the or what I call NCOR now the data feed is um. I called it Generation 5 because it was the fifth time that I was going to start with a blank sheet of paper and design the ideal ticker plan that, uh, so that you could build things on top of it and not have to worry about all of the, the difficulties that go into putting together a ticker plan, you know, which involves maintenance and, and databasing and normalization and... Um, duplication and 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 then have a nice API on top of it so that writing software for it would be a joy and so that's what I set out to do in in two thousand and um, I logged the hours and it was about twenty five thousand hours later I had it at a stage where I was comfortable releasing it um, to my first customer, and that was in two thousand and four and uh Remembering the the crazy times of going from zero to ten thousand paying subscribers, I wanted to go this I wanted to do this one a little bit slower and more manageable. So I never advertised um it was available. I partnered with a company by the way, uh called data uh, at the time it was called Data Transmission Network. Now I think they're owned by Schneider but they're still my partner and they're essentially, they do all of the non-software related things. Um, they manage the networks, they uh, deal with the exchanges, which is a big part of the equation, the the, uh, the contracts with customers, the billing, everything that's not really related to processing um, the real time stream. So by not advertising or wanting to push it and you know, I wasn't out to conquer the world and, and you know, be the, the king of real time. I just wanted to kind of like build a solid niche that, um, that I was proud of, that I could write software on top of. And so uh, by never advertising it, we got a, a very wide variety of, of customers using it because they weren't targeted.
1: Right okay so who are the you know you said you've got a wide variety of customers using uh Ancor. who are those like who are those types of customers like are they big institutional funds who utilize your data or are they yes. you know independent guys yes
2: like, yeah name me a group and I'll say yes we got one <laughs> we, got, we have representations from all groups including high frequency trading firms who want to you know do uh back testing on it. You know we have we have a very unique data set. Um, we pride ourselves in um, really you know drilling down to the issues. In fact we helped, we help the exchanges actually debug some of their issues that they had with the, diff- the, the various um, trade conditions for example, and whether it sets the higher or lower or and, you know crazy rules that they have. Whenever something didn't match up, we would track it all the way down to the source to find out exactly why that's not, why this condition is, is doing X when you have a document doing it Y. And, and so it's that attention to detail and, and also just the joy of working with uh, the API. It really is out of the box. For somebody, somebody to work with a data feed, usually there's a, a long process in understanding all the different ways to parse that data but with EnCore, it's, it's a really unique experience where, in, where, an experienced programmer can come along who's written for other data feeds, and within one day, will totally get it, and will be, will be actually getting, you know, getting down to writing what he wants to instead of working with uh, the with the API, with the actual nuts and bolts of the feed.
1: Okay. Okay. So, just so we understand, why is the data that you provide so unique from other data providers that exist to this day? Well,
2: one, we don't we don't exclude anything. A lot a lot of other data providers will squeeze out the information that they don't feel is necessary. They'll they'll normalize it way before it's it supposed to be normalized. And um, but I don't I don't believe in that at all. The other thing is I've developed real time compression that drops the size of the information uh, by to a 20th of its original size. One of the things that I've, I've specialized over the years in working in, on, in software is uh, data compression, data transmission, and uh, graphical interface. So the compression part, I sat down and tried to figure out a way where I could I could not sacrifice speed but get the tightest compression possible, and I had been st- stabbing at it for many many years in the past and I finally got a, a breakthrough that allowed the compression to drop fast lower and lower than I had I had expected in the beginning and as an added bonus was was very fast and it was so fast that it actually ended up being back in the day faster to compress it and transmit it than not to compress it at all because of the serial latency cost on networks. So the data is tiny, but it's rich with all the information within. It's very easy. It's hard to describe, but it's very, it has things in it that when programmers see it and use it for the first time, realize the huge advantage that they get. For example, one of the of the more expensive tasks in dealing with the ticker is taking that symbol and associating it with a memory pointer where or, or, or you're actually going to start doing some work with it. That association there is really a pretty expensive process. With our feed, that, we'd cut that cost down to zero. It's literally no cost to have that instant... Um, you're working with that data immediately, and we save you these important steps along the way. It just makes it easier, you know. Unless you're a software guy and you've used it, you won't. It's it's impossible for me to explain, but the guys who have used it, there's that light bulb moment when they get it. And, you know, usually it's just like, oh, that's brilliant. That's just awesome. And that's the last we hear of them because they don't need our help anymore. I mean, they're off and, and going.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Now, your your flagship product here, um, Encore, I understand it collects around about 6 billion data points each and every day, which is huge.
2: Well, we're up to 20, 20 billion-ish. Wow, okay. 30 years <laughs> a year, uh, you know, they keep adding options exchanges and <laughs> and they keep developing new option products. And, I mean, there's a million different option contracts out there and there's 15 exchanges and, you know, 15 times a million times one quote per second gets you to 15 million a second.
1: Wow, wow. Okay, so 20 billion data points per day Can you give us some idea about the infrastructure and service space required to support this data? Well,
2: it's about a petabyte uh, raw now. Okay, so what's that? Again, a petabyte, so um, you have gigabyte, and then a 1,000 gigabytes is a terabyte, and then a 1,000 terabytes is a petabyte.
1: Okay, okay, right. And is all all that stored locally, or do you use like um, sort of a cloud system
2: we we are, we do have we do have um some of it in the cloud some of the more recent data in the cloud but we have it in triplicate in different locations it's um it's it's an it's an onslaught of data that's coming at us every day you know it's, it's it could be a terabyte a day that has to go through the system and uh we've you know it's all it's automated to to check it to test it to um to, to, to you know, look for errors and, and correct those errors. And it's not something you'd be able to develop right away. It's after a lot of experience you you learn the the best way to make that flow automatically. Sure.
3: Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
1: So let's just change topics here. Let's dive into the subject of high-frequency trading. So one of the questions I want to start out with is asking you, when did you first begin to notice HFT activity in the data you were collecting?
2: Well, I remember looking at, uh, you know, just checking on how the compression was doing um, and seeing quotes from, you know, certain, I think it was ARCA was the first one I, I really noticed it on where it was an obvious pattern where the quote would would step up a penny and then down to, and then up to, you know, a pattern like that over and over again over a short period of time. And I, I thought that was interesting, but it wasn't enough for me to like, like really sound the alarm or, or it was. it just looked like, you know, somebody's testing some system and, and it's, it's not a, it's not something that will happen all the time. And then, and then it wasn't until the flash crash came along and, you know, just, Overwhelmed the the data systems throughout Wall Street, uh, the SIP just got crushed that afternoon, and uh, and we, you know, my my colleague Jeff and I, we saw the SEC wasn't getting anywhere with their with with assemb- even assembling the data to start processing and seeing what happened. And you know, the beauty of EnCore is you can go back to any day um, and replay that day just like it happened in real time. I mean. Where, where you can see what the options were doing, what the futures were doing, what the ETFs were doing and the underlyings, all of that as if you were there on that day. So you can go through scenarios and you can see what the relationships are. And so I remarked to, um, Jeff Donovan, my, uh, uh my program around California. I said, you know what? Why don't we spend a week just seeing if we can find anything unusual in the data set. And, uh, Oh God! Do I regret that? <laughs> I, that was that was going down a rabbit hole that just keeps on going. Um, yeah, so so you know, it was a very short period of time we discovered. Oh my gosh! Look, NYC was was thirty seconds late updating the you know the sit quotes, and uh, we published uh, the first thing that we've ever written. And it got picked up on Zero Hedge and boom, overnight, um, you know, people were calling us, um, uh, Andre Krilenko from the CFTC, for example, saw it and he was like, oh, you got to come out to Washington. We want to talk to you. And, and, uh, and that's kind of where it all, where the rabbit hole got deeper.
1: Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, and you, you do a really great job of explaining um, that 30-second that delay that occurred during the flash crash uh, in the documentary, Money and Speed, so I'll make sure to link to that documentary um, in the show notes. Uh, just want to ask you to explain the SIP, if you could, please.
2: Well, the SIP is a consolidated feed, man. So what's what's really unique about the U.S. stock market, that I don't think is replicated anywhere else, and God, I hope nobody does. Replicates that model, but they sell two data feeds, and uh, one of them is faster than the other. But by law, they're not, it's not supposed to be, and 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 so the SIP was supposed to be the only source of real time information. I mean, it's written and referenced everywhere in the uh, in Reg NMS, which is the regulation that that brought really ushered in high frequency trading in the U.S. stock market. And uh, so the SIP was being used by a lot of firms for the, re- the real time data, including Goldman Sachs' Sigma X dark pool. Many dark pools were using it, many exchanges were using it. In fact, the NYC still uses it to this day um, for knowing where the prices are at the other exchanges. And so the SIP is a consolidated feed, which should be the only feed, but the exchanges also sell direct feeds independently.
1: Okay, got it, got it. So just before I fire off some more questions about HFT, I think it might be a good idea to to ask you what's your interpretation of HFT because I know many people have you know slightly different um, understandings of you know the the phrase HFT and high frequency trading. So when you speak about HFT, what are you referring to?
2: Okay, I'm going to make this really simple. HFT is all the electronic trading. <laughs> And I, I like to use this phrase, electronic trading brought down costs, high-frequency trading brought down ethics. High-frequency trading is a form of trading that takes zero risk. It results in perfect trading days. It's, it's where you have the sell side already executing at the same time as the buy side is executing. It's risk-free arbitrage, and it can only work if you have collusion with the exchanges. The exchanges are fully aware of what's going on. And because they sell these high-priced data feeds which is just what's driving all of their income. And so it's this this, this symbiotic relationship between the, between the uh, high-frequency firms and the exchanges. High-frequency trading requires um, special access. It requires um, special uh, wink wink nodge nodge nudge nudge deals with the regulator, you know, so, so they don't get fined into oblivion. It requires a lobbyist. It, it doesn't, it's not so much the code, it's, it's so much um, the infrastructure that you have to build around it and then hope to God you don't, you know, suffer a regulatory breakdown. So I'm all for electronic trading. I, I would prefer no rules at all as long as it was equal for everyone, I believe that that the smartest guy should win, and the smartest guy shouldn't have to worry about hiring a lobbyist to win. I, I have a big problem when the rules are not transparent, when the rules clearly say X is illegal, but X is going on all the time. I it's hard for smart people to operate in that environment. It's it's hard for me as a businessman to decide I'm going to support. That kind of product, even though I know that is illegal and it should not be, you know, one day if, a, if somebody with ethics ever gotten to a, a position of power to a regulator would shut it down, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going when to, the, when the biggest risk is regulatory risk and not market risk and, um, or the traditional types of risk in this industry, uh, smart people are going to say no.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so what? Just so we we really understand this issue, um, you know, I know it's a very complex issue, um, and maybe to get a, a complete understanding of it might be slightly beyond the scope of this podcast. But what is the big issue? Like, what's the problem with HFT? If you had to like kind of put your finger on it.
2: Well, okay. So, I want to I want to say HFT for the most part is really is something that exists within the U.S. stock market more than anywhere else. In fact, compared to a uh, a central limit order book that you'll find in many other places, including like the CME is a central limit order book, 99% of the issues don't exist. The high frequency trading in the U.S. stock market exists because the laws of physics and the distances between exchanges and the lack of super-regulatory of oversight, and the exchanges allowing um, or giving these guys faster data feeds, essentially Reagan MS was supposed to tie together 10, to satanic 10 stock exchanges so that the liquidity would pool together. So before, if you had one exchange trading one stock, all the liquidity would be at that exchange, the central limit order book. They wanted competition. So instead of having one exchange, we'll have multiple exchanges, let's say 10. And the idea was if we tie them all together with the SIP, with Consolidated Feed, and Reg NMS, which has, um, has this trade the rule, which if one of those other exchanges has a better price, you can't trade outside of that other exchange, you have to go access that liquidity by the, those pieces in Reagan MS, the thought was we'll have competition and we'll still have the pooling of all that liquidity together. But HFT does in the U S stock market, is it guarantees that that liquidity is not all pooled together. And once they see executions going off at one of those exchanges, they have faster connections and the ability to race ahead of that executing market order and, and cancel their orders at the other exchanges and even go in the same direction ahead of those orders um, depending on what their statistical models say. So they're in effect um, destroying that liquidity concentration. So that when traders see, oh, there's 20,000 shares of forward offered at the market, even though the 20,000 is 5,000 at NYC and 6,000 at Nasdaq and 4,000 over at BATS, they're never going to get 20,000. They're going to get a piece of that.
1: Okay, so one of the counter-arguments that you often hear from those who are in favor of HFT, they often say that HFT provides participants with tighter spreads, is that at all
2: true? No, it's not true. That's not true. Spreads change within. So first question I always ask, and I never get an answer, by the way, is how are you measuring your sprints? Are you measuring the widest in a second, the narrowest in a second? Are you aggregating over longer periods of time? Because I can show you thousands and thousands of examples where a stock will move 1% within a second, yet maintain a 1 cent spread during that second. So so from one point of view, it's a 1% spread and another point of way to measure it, it's a one cent spread. And I I can guarantee you, uh, who's going to actually participate in that one, uh, the benefit of the one cent spread and who's going to get reamed on that 1% spread. And it's not going to be the retail investor.
1: Okay, so are there any other? Oh, that's probably the wrong phrasing. Are there any benefits that come from HFTs being active in the marketplace?
2: Yeah, uh, they push the envelope for um, transmitting information from point A to point B. In other words, they're you know they're they're providing an incentive for for the millimeter um, microwave dishes to improve, to drop latency, for FPGA cards to be more efficient. I mean, Wall Street has always played a strong role in um, being on the cutting edge of technology and kind of supported, the, you know, the early engineering efforts at Intel and Dell and, and, and Cisco who, you know, might not have um, developed really high-tech, bleeding-edge kind of things. And, and so that that's one one benefit they provide. They certainly do not provide any benefit to somebody um, trading on the other side of them.
1: So a term that you often hear associated with HFT is quote stuffing. Um, I know you've mentioned this in the past also and I think you might have been almost hinting to it a little bit earlier on. Um, Could you explain what is quote stuffing and has this um, not always existed on some level?
2: Well, actually, that's a term that I coined.
1: <laughs> when, <Okay.
2: laughs> when, when we saw... Well, one of the reasons that the SIP got so delayed back in the day was because of the excess traffic on it. Uh, you know, noisy quotes, quote spam. And I remember when I was... Jeff and I would try to come up with a name for it. I wanted something that was going to be easily Googleable to know that, hey, we created that. And so... Um, I don't remember whether it was him or I that came up with it, but coat stuffing is the term we used and, um, and now it's being used everywhere. Uh, coat stuffing was, is simply was, is a tool to allow you to slow down uh, another data feed on demand. Like if you want back the, back in the day, if you wanted the NYSE's direct feed to be a little slower, it was a matter of putting X amount of quotes in this inactive symbol, which also was processing the symbols that you were interested in. It was a, it was just more network traffic. It was effectively tiny DD you know denial of service kind of thing going on. And when when you are an internalizer, or a wholesaler who is who is buying and selling on direct feeds and you're giving the retail customer prices based on the SIP, well, whenever those two are out of sync, it's free money. You buy yourself off the direct feed, you pick out of whatever number you think you can get away with giving the retailer a price for their order. And if those two are out of sync, it's, it's instant money. Because, you know, the regulatory requirement was that you had to be within what the SIP price was showing, and, if the, and regardless if the SIP was slower or not. So, so I, I remember having a discussion with somebody at a big bank, one of these firms, and telling them when I first discovered, "Hey, you know what? You can actually—I can tell you exactly how you can slow down any one of these feeds." And the reply came back, "Yeah, we know. We've got—we've got these latency tables, dude." <laughs> Oh, it's just like, well, yeah, of course, you You know, then I just sheepishly, you know, grinned to myself, yeah, you would. It makes total sense. <laughs> and so, yeah, all the things that we discovered and published, these they all knew this was going on. And uh, whatever they called it to slow systems down. I don't know, but um, that's what close stuffing is all about. And it only really works if you got something that has that has two data feeds pricing the same thing. So it, it doesn't, well actually, I you know, it, you can actually affect the, the central limit order books as well, like the CMEs, because you gotta remember, one machine is it's gonna process more than just one symbol, except for SBY, I mean the E-mini probably is only processed by one, but there probably are systems there that process like the ten-year note in the, the five-year, and so if you like put a load on the ten or the five, it's also going to put a load on the other on the other contracts in there, and you know it could cause an arbitrage situation with the cash market. So it's just putting noise in the systems uh, in order to slow it down. And so one of the things you have to to do all the time, um, because of that, you know, you have to combat that, too, because other, others are gonna do it. You have gotta maintain your latency tables. You gotta know what those limits are. So if the exchange upgrades a network or a machine, you know, all of a sudden that number is different. So you gotta know when that changes. And so you're always pinging and testing to see what that limit is. And there's, you know, there's no cost for sending bogus quotes through the system, so why not? And so a lot of the
1: noise that we see is that. Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's a really great answer there, Eric. Thank you very much for, for, you know, digging into that. Um, In various documentaries you've featured in, you've actually described HFT activity as stealing and rigging the market. Do you actually believe that is the case, you know, in a literal sense?
2: Oh, I have no doubt. No doubt. You know, anybody who, who disbelieves, I welcome you to come to my office. I guarantee you, after two or three hours, you will leave changed. In fact, Nate, who works here um, in the office next to me, always says, you know, every time somebody comes here, when they leave, their, their mouth is, like, on the floor, and they're just like, like, you could tell it was information overload. Because I can show you, I can show you exactly what's happening. I can show you documentation of of the proposals that exchanges have made. I can show you, you know, fines that have come out years later. You know, years after they were denying this stuff ever existed. Uh, it's it's totally rigged.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I mean, I'd love to come by your office sometime if um if I'm ever in the states there. So <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Um, now. Let's let's get to the bottom of this. So who is the real victim here of HFT? Is it retail traders? Is it longer-term investors? Who's really affected by this?
2: Everyone. And it's not, you know, the thing is, there's no busload of children going over a cliff. It's just a, a billion paper cuts suffered by everyone. It's, you know, it's something in the system that doesn't need to be in there. One of the real damaging effects it has is it kills the diversity of participants, where if, if everything is based on speed and even a little bit of intelligence that takes too long it to work out or you don't have that regulatory advantage, you kinda of get sidelined. And so you end up with a market that you know is just filled with lemming machines that that don't have a diversity of opinion and might not at the moment do something, you know, when the market is crashing, do something what might look stupid and jump in there and buy. They're not going to do that because they're faster than the other ones, and and you end up getting these 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 microstructure um, uh, you know gapes in the in reality when all of a sudden you know a, a large cap stock will just suddenly evaporate five percent and then suddenly recover. And, you know, lots of times you look on a chart and you'll see a little spike down. You will think oh, it was a bad price. And then when you actually dig into it, you see the, well, oh, there was a thousand trades and oh, a penny all the way down, got executed a penny all the way up in, in a half a second. And then you see that this happens dozens of times a day. And then you see that it's in really big cap stocks. And then you see the SEC, you know, saying, well, people shouldn't use stop orders anymore. <laughs> And then you think, wait a minute, you know, that's never been a problem in the past. And so it changes the whole way the market is set up to be not really, con- not really assist- assisting the retail trader. For example, what kind of orders do you have available to you as a retail trader? Uh, buy, sell, market, but I'm not supposed to use those anymore, limit, and, uh, and stop and I'm not supposed to see stuff anymore either. There's, where's the order that says, I wanna buy, whenever the market drops, you know, suddenly this much percent at any one of these changes, or I wanna, I wanna trade at 9.45 in the morning. Oh look, I've got surgery scheduled in the morning, I'm not gonna be watching the market, and I sure don't wanna get eaten alive at the open, but I wanna buy at 9.45, you know, a.m., you know, 15 minutes after it opens. And where's that order? I mean, nobody's
1: catering to you know the group that's actually getting eaten alive. Mm, okay, so if this really is such a big issue in the market structure, why have regulators not stepped in and put a complete stop to it? I know there's been fines handed out, you know, here and there, but there's not a there's not been a complete stop put in place. Why is this the case?
2: They're corrupt. And I don't say that lightly. I say that after years of banging my head on it and talking with them and reading documents and calling them out on it and and being right, um, everything I've published used to be called a conspiracy nut for has been proven true. I mean, the SEC just gave me a 750K whistleblower fine for, for, you know, the discovery I made at the very top of the rabbit hole. It, these guys are, they're, they're looking for their next job and they get wined and dined by, you know, these firms, the whole, the whole thing with the IEX, for example, the, them coming in and, and, um, really promising the future employment, you just, they're, why would they stick their necks out when they don't have to? there's no there's no bonus check in it for them for doing the right thing.
1: so so in that case on the on the I mean on the other hand, to what extent are the exchanges also uh, responsible for this type of activity that goes on?
2: They're totally I mean, they're totally responsible because they're selling these data feeds and they're ensuring that they're faster. It's not so the law is really clear that you, you can't provide data fast, core data faster on your direct feed, then you provide it to the SIPP. And that is what the NYC has fined $5 million for. And that is what the NYC swore to me. Uh, the CT, the CTO of NYSE on stage, I was next to him on stage. We were both invited to speak at the TD, um, uh, annual event in Toronto and it was Larry Liebowitz, who's actually the brother of, of John Stewart. And he has the gift of talking like his brother does. And he was there on stage painting me as a conspiracy person because I was saying that their feed was slow. And what was really funny about that interaction was I had done this study in July of uh, July twenty first or yeah of two thousand and ten, just after the flash crash. And Larry was saying that. Oh, there were some system issues and, but we got them fixed and everything is fine now. And I and I was asking him, I said, were they w well, how long did it take you to fix them? And well we had to fix right away. We saw it and fixed it right away. And I said to him, I said, So it would have been fixed in June. And yeah, of course you know, look he looks at me like am I don't know what I'm talking about. He says, Yes And then I said, Well, this study was done in July and it shows the same thing happening. And, um, this is a kind of, this is, that's par for the course. I had a long discussion with Bill, o, the now disgraced Bill O'Brien, you know, the guy who had a, a, a little fight or spat with, um, Brad Katsuyama on CNBC who, you know, he argued things with me and he spent the whole afternoon, you know, arguing his point but it wasn't based on on anything concrete or reproducible it was just based on what he was saying i mean they're very smooth talkers so that talking to a reporter i it's so easy to bamboozle them because it's a very technical thing and they're you know in a position of authority and and i think how this all got this way is in the united states we we give the exchanges, um, they're self-regulating organizations, SROs, which means that they have legal immunity, which, you know, over the years, if you have legal immunity, which means you can't be sued for even if you you egregiously do something wrong. Well, I, I know human nature a little bit and you mix that in with capitalism and having shareholders, Legal immunity is just a, a downward path to the place that we're at today, and that is why.
1: Yeah, and you make some really great points in there, Eric. And I, you know, I imagine you'd be a very difficult man to argue with because you have the data. And I mean, at the end of the day, the data does not lie. Um, so
2: I've yeah. never lost a debate when it comes to data. <laughs> and i never talk about anything i don't have data on. i mean if I'm, if it's not a subject i'm comfortable with or i don't have a data to support it i'm not going to say anything about it. and so yeah, so that so at the end of the day i never but you know the thing is it doesn't work for sound bites. it's not a news story and and i can't cut reporters' off access off where the nyc can or the, or nasdaq can and that's a big deal.
1: mhm yeah yeah, because I mean, there's such a big difference between fact and opinion. I mean, they're two very different things. So, I mean, just moving on, is HFT here to stay? Like, should we just accept that it's not going anywhere, and this is the new market, or not so fast?
2: Well, so I ask you this: um, Is it should we accept that a person of integrity and um, will never get into a position of power at the CFTC or the SEC? you know, somebody who's very knowledgeable and has integrity, if you're telling me that that person will never get in a position of power, then I will tell you that HFT is here to stay. But the day somebody like me gets in there, their, their days are numbered. Because you don't have to create any new laws. You don't even have to, you know, try to set precedents. You just go and say, well, we find that person that much for doing X. You did the same thing for a longer period of time. Um, you get the same punishment. Like, for example, Sarah, who's, you know, facing a lifetime in prison, which, by the way, I think is just a travesty. He's not doing anything different than these guys are doing. And why is he being singled out? I mean, it's just, it's wrong. And so if somebody ever gets in a position of power like that, they're, they're in a, a heap of trouble. So you tell me, is, is that how is that how society is going to be going forward? Is that what the new the, the new is that the new new thing?
1: Yeah, well, you do raise an interesting point. I mean, is that something that you would like to step up to if the position was ever available? And oh,
2: I offer doing it for free. Yep, as, as long as I've got authority, and I'm not gonna like I said, I'm not gonna create any new rules. I'm not gonna try to set any new precedents. I'm going to go through the existing laws and what's already been done and apply them equally and transparently.
1: Okay, and what sort of response did you get when you offered to um, to do oh, it for free?
2: Always oh, dead, silent. dead <laughs> silence. Dead <laughs> silence.
1: Right, right. Okay, Eric, so I just have a couple questions left here and these questions are mainly based around um, many flash crashes. So I think for the most part, Um, listeners are probably familiar with the flash crash that occurred in 2010. Um, I want to ask you about these mini flash crashes that seem to occur more frequently. So uh, I guess, first of all, what is a mini flash crash and how frequently are you seeing these occur?
2: Well, we define it as something that happens within a second that involves more than 500 trades that involves price move of, of several percent. and and it always reverses. So there's the crash and then there's the recovery, and the crash involves a frenzy of trading activity, and the recovery involves a lot of activity, though not quite as much as on the way down. They, They also happen in reverse, equally. So you'll get a frenzy to the upside, and then the recovery, and this will all happen easily within a second, and often involves a thousand trades, and will often involve all 10 exchanges and many dark pools to boot. So this is a phenomenon that did not exist before 2007. After 2007, they started appearing more and more frequently, and we ha- we still have them to this day in big cap stocks, like just today, HOT, uh, um, large cap stock for hotel, I, I'm not sure what the name of it is, but the symbol is HOT, it's Hotel and Properties, um, company just out of the blue, uh, ripped higher and and then right back down again. And what's going on is somebody's trying to access the liquidity, gets discovered by one of these high frequency firms that that maybe be a little bit more predatory, sees it and races ahead to to trade in the same direction, knowing that that algorithm that they're using is going to keep going and buying more. And they they know that they're the fastest, and so the, and other firms who may not be the fastest, but they know that there are plenty of people slower than them are going to jump on, and so on until you've got you know the guys at the very end of it who are, you know, the you know the ultimate suckers who are going to end up getting dumped on when the whole thing reverses and comes back the other way, and so what <laughs> the what these. Kinds of events have caused how it hurts everybody. All the participants is you really can't have a, a flat stop order in the market anymore because you're gonna get taken out by one of these, and you can't really participate in these because they don't always execute at all exchanges. So in other words, you know, if you were to wanted to place an order to get executed whenever a stock dropped below X amount, it, they don't always go off at all the ten exchanges. Sometimes they're confined to a few especially at that last part of it. And so you're never going to get filled. You can't really participate in them in a way that you can benefit from them, which would in turn prevent them from happening or be as severe. And you're going to end up getting stopped out by them, which means you know people are less likely to use stops. So the way that the, the SEC came around to fixing this was creating this thing called Limit Up, Limit Down, which is, A very complicated, um, essentially moving average based on all the trades in the last five minutes and um, and updates in certain way. It doesn't update all the time. There's rules, this, that, with the other rules about them, but they're basically about 5% away from the, the last price. And so now that those have been rolled out and put in place, we see a lot of these little flash crashes will go within a penny of them and reverse. That's the point that they reverse it in price. So they've they've ended up becoming magnets, so to speak. Whereas before the you know, the stock might, you know, drop two percent on one of these. Now they're pretty much guaranteed to go the full five percent and back.
1: Hmm. Okay. Okay. That's that's really fascinating and it sounds very complex. Um, it's almost like they've just kind of put a band aid on the issue and not really Solved it
2: that's exactly what they did which you know kind of came back and bit them on on august 24th when you know the problem with this is it it, it contains one stock well well if you call you know walmart dropping five percent back in inside of a, a second if you call that contained but when ha- when you have multiple stocks doing it and they're members of etfs or indexes and one of them was halted and the other one's not and you know, or five from our halt is, and they come out of the halt at various times. It makes it very complicated for the people who are trying to up the ETFs. And you know, whenever there's complication or confusion, that re- instantly results in more volatility and um, and less participation. You know, so you end up you end up with these with liquidity evaporating out of very quickly. So you know I guess i, I could ask you where's the where where are these tight spreads that um are being claimed by these high frequency firms if we have these mini flash crashes all the time i mean i'm tar- I mean dozens and dozens every day occur, so if there truly were you know providing tighter spreads, you wouldn't have this. We certainly didn't have it before two thousand and seven,
1: yeah, now that's wild. Now, from what you see going on, you know, on a day-to-day basis, what's the likelihood that we could experience something much more significant and damaging than the 2010 flash crash?
2: Well, August 24th is pretty bad. Um, The Treasury incident back in uh, October of 2014 was pretty bad. (laughs) The dollar 5% crash uh, one year ago today... Was pretty bad. They, they keep coming; they're just not being talked about. So that's the solutions we're just not going to talk about them.
1: Last question I've got for you, Eric. Um, now I know you've been a great supporter of the development of IEX and then potentially becoming a, a recognized exchange. Uh, what's significant about what IEX is doing?
2: They haven't. They're people of integrity. Remember I said what will happen when you get somebody of integrity and power. So if the IEX becomes an exchange, they're now SRO, which means they have legal immunity, which you know also means that they've got they can see what's going on and somebody with integrity and power to say, Hey, this firm what you're doing is wrong and calling them out on it and not having, you know, the that um, worry oh, I can't do that. I can't talk to them and tell them not to do that because they're buying my data feeds and that's all of our income and these guys generate all of our income. We can't we can't tell them to stop. You get a person, of, you know, you get people of integrity with power and these things will go away and that's what IEX represents.
1: Okay, sure. No, good answer and um, I'm hoping to have one of the guys from IEX on the podcast um, sometime soon so that should be a a good discussion too. Well, Eric, let's wrap this up. It's been an eye-opening conversation, that's for sure. I mean, I've really appreciated having you here and thank you very much for setting aside the time to do this. Um, I know you're a busy man. And you've got a lot going on. So, um, yeah, it was it was really good to, to speak with you. Where can listeners go to find out more about you?
2: Our website, nanex.net, and It's hard to miss us. Just Google or Nanex.net. Yeah, I I frequently post on Twitter
1: um, under Nanex LLC. Awesome. Well, I strongly encourage you guys listening to go and follow Eric on Twitter at Nanex LLC. Um, he posts a lot of really great content, very outspoken and um, some awesome visualizations, um, which I get a real kick out of looking at. So, um, Eric, once again... Thank you very much for doing this, man. Um, we'll speak again soon.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.